Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Good morning. Great to have you here again today. God bless you for coming. I want to welcome our radio listeners who hear these broadcasts, sometimes weeks or months or years after they're preached. And uh, we welcome you wherever you're listening, or if you're on the internet listening there or watching it on TV, wherever you are. We get letters from people in prison, nursing homes from all over the country. I think we've had close to 50 or 60 countries where people hear this broadcast and uh, write us to tell us what it means to them. So we're grateful for the privilege of this microphone and grateful for you uh, as you worship with us here this morning. I hope you have your Bibles and you have turned to Psalm 119. Verse 9 through 16 is what we're taking a look at today. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I, for once... Neither one of us had any commitments on a Saturday, so we took Saturday off. I said, well, we could go and do something special, so let's do something special. And so we decided to get in the car, not knowing exactly where we're going to be heading, but we decided, well, when push comes to shove, you head to the mall. And so the mall (laughs) we chose to head to was the King of Prussia Mall up outside of Philadelphia. I hadn't been there in a long time. I know the area pretty well. Um, But as we got closer, we realized, I realized, and I'm not one who's afraid to admit it, I was lost, and we were heading on the Schuylkill Expressway the wrong way. And uh, as we're heading down uh, the Schuylkill Expressway toward Philadelphia, away from King of Prussia, we noticed for miles and miles and miles that there was a backup of traffic going the other way, which was where I was supposed to go. So rather than do a U-turn, we decided, well, there must be something else up here that we're supposed to do today that's special. So we visited our old stomping grounds. And we decided we would have lunch up there and just walk around and see where our ministry started. And I know I've shared this with you before in another context, but we went to our very first church, which is this beautiful, magnificent structure that you can actually see on the other side of the Schuylkill River, actually see it hanging over the river. It's just a massive structure with big spirals going up and down and just a wonderful edifice, just a masterpiece of the architecture of the 1920s. And uh, we parked our car in front of our very first parsonage, which was made out of the same bricks and same iron fencing that the church was made out of, and they're right across the street from each other, sitting on these rolling hills. If you've ever been in Roxborough or the Maniunk area, you know that it's, the hills go straight up and down. It's just uh, how they built these homes on these hills, and especially this church was beyond me. It was just a masterpiece back in the 1920s. And we stood outside of our old parsonage, which is now a, an apartment complex. That's how big this thing was. Imagine just the two of us with our first child born, I guess a year after we got there, uh, in this massive parsonage. It had stairs going up the front, 
and stairs going down the back. I could chase Sharon up the steps on one side and chase her down the steps on the other side. That's in the days in which I could chase. <laughs> Just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, it's right there in smack dab in the middle of the city. And I remember going over to that church building, one of my first Sundays there, I remember going over into the basement, which was really a cellar. If you know the difference between a basement and a cellar, this was a cellar. And down in the cellar of this basement was this picture about this big and about this high. And it was a picture of the original men's Bible class. There were over, I counted them, over 400 men in that picture. All dressed in suits and ties and white shirts. These were your dock workers, the guys that worked down by the river, the guys that unloaded the boats and uh, ran the factories and the mills and the uh, clothing industry that was there. These were the guys who settled uh, in that part of the country years ago. And I began to imagine what it must have been like to be in that church. There was ample testimony of the faithfulness of the gospel being preached and that Christ was at the center. You could see it in the architecture. It was clearly a building designed to give honor and glory to God. Can you imagine what these men must have felt like? Because in those days, they built the buildings. They didn't necessarily hire out contractors and what have you. They built the buildings with their own hands. I can't imagine how when they put those stones together, what that building must have looked like when it was new. The beautiful stained glass windows. Uh, you have never seen stained glass windows like these. They surrounded uh, the pulpit. I mean, I would preach from here and the stained glass windows would start over to my right and they would go all the way down that wall and all the way down that wall and the entire wall in ahead of me was this massive stained glass uh, picture told, telling the stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. Oak hardwood floors and those beautiful oak pews and this massive pipe organ and the history, rich history of that church from the 1920s. I can't imagine what they must have felt like when the stock market crashed and the uh, Great Depression set in. And how many of those men were laid off their jobs. And uh, I wonder how they paid the bills for the church. And how the church survived those early years. But it was very clear. Not only in that church. But all the way through that entire area. We drove through yesterday. And we uh, looked once again at what we remembered to be the case. Forty some churches in a radius of about one or two miles. And all of them every Sunday packed to the gills. People wanting to hear the gospel. You could walk through those churches today and never run into anybody because for all intents and purposes, most of them have dried up. What happened? What happened there? It made us weep when we stood. I said, told Sharon, I said, I feel like crying. We stood outside the building, which is the, the church, which all the stained glass windows have been removed and shipped somewhere else, and they've been replaced by apartment windows. The whole church is now an apartment complex where some yuppies live. Uh, just to see that, just to stand outside there and see that. The old parsonage where we used to, where we raised part of our family is, is now an apartment complex, and we just stood there on the street and said, what happened? It didn't take long. 
It took a generation and a half, maybe two generations, for the gospel for all intents and purposes to become defunct. You look at most of your major cities and the, the story is repeated over and over and over again in just about every major city in the world. Whether it's in England or Germany or France, where the great preachers like Whitfield and Wesley and Calvin and, and, uh, and, and the others proclaimed the glorious message of hope. And even on those great colleges, the, the uh, Ivy League schools and the, the great universities of the world where the message of Christ was so prevalent is now dried up. What happened? We went out for lunch together and had a great time visiting in that area. And then we decided to go look at our second church. And we went over to a part of the city that was beginning to deteriorate significantly when we were there. In fact, our house sat on what we called the DMZ between a white gang and a black gang. Many, many killings took place in that part of the city, still do. In fact, at our time, it was the highest incidence of gang killing in all of the city. Our ministry was out on the street. Sharon said this. She pointed out, I used to walk the coach, the kids on the coach here. I said, I can't believe I let you do that. Uh, given how dangerous that nature, I used to take them up to the library here and we used to go grocery shopping there. And, but when we drove through that part of the city, the only word I can use to describe it is darkness. A terrible, terrible darkness. Homes sinking to the ground, abandoned homes torn apart, trash a foot deep everywhere you can look, emptiness on the faces of the people. We stopped at different places and just looked at the people and you could see it in their eyes, the hollowness, the emptiness, the lostness. And yet in the middle of that community are great massive churches that one day stood as testimonies to the marvelous grace of God. Those churches are now boarded up. Houses are destroyed. Darkness. We were there at the height of daytime. The sun was shining, but it was dark. And I began to think to myself, what's going to happen to Glasgow in two generations? Are we going to have pictures in our basement of the great times of worship that we used to have? the great music that used to be played, the wonderful structures that were paid off by the sacrifices of the people who loved to be here, who were not coming here out of obligation or duty, but wanted to be in the house of God. Will this pulpit even be here? Will somebody one day stand behind this pulpit and never open the scriptures, never teach the word, Never proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Will it take two generations for us to become defunct? Will people drive by and say, as they drive by this church that becomes dilapidated and worn out and externally looking like what it is experiencing internally, will they say, that used to be a great church? Those people used to love the Lord. Will our legacy continue? Will it take just one or two generations to tuck our Bible study pictures in the basement and forget the rock from whence we were hewn and the hole from which we were digged? Will your children get it? Will they take over when most of us here are dead and gone?
Will this church thrive? Or will we go the way of many churches with its trend toward liberalism? And liberalism is the surefire way to kill a church. Make it liberal and it will soon die. Make the denomination liberal and it will soon die. And what do I mean by liberal? Very simply, an abandonment of the belief that this book is the word of God. When this book is no longer the word of God, when this book is no longer considered the word of God, when this book is not preached, when we begin to experience the newfangled ideas of the modern mind, and when we begin to move our character and our, our traditions away from the belief in this book, then we will go the same route. And this church will also die on the vine. And the people in our neighborhoods will walk around with the same glassy looks that we see now in the eyes of those who walk the streets of the city. An emptiness, a darkness, a hopelessness. Where is the gospel? Where are the gospel preachers? Where are the gospel preachers to be? Who is coming up after us? I raise this question in a particular context. I'm going to build over this week and next week an understanding of a very specific need that I believe we have in our culture today, especially in our church today. And that is the need to understand how we remain pure. Moral purity is not a given. Moral purity is the way by which we water down the message of scripture and abandon the concepts of scripture and we begin to move in context with the culture and in concert with the culture and we marry the culture. Here's what happens. One generation stands firm in the preaching of the word, but their kids don't get it. They walk over here. They can still see the word, but they're standing here, not behind the word, but here, away from the word, they still have enough energy to reach over and touch it and say, yes, that's part of what I believe. But I'm also beginning to believe this as they turn their backs away from the word. They begin to accept traditions and they begin to accept moral standards that are not clearly spelled out in this book or standards that are clearly spelled out in opposition to this book. And then they begin to walk even further and further. And then their children are birthed. And their children are now birthed in the context of a belief system that their parents have embraced that has long since abandoned the word. And within one or two generations, you've got people standing over here that can't even see the word any longer. They have married the culture. They have become one with the culture. They have married the world. They have embraced the standards of the world. In fact, they're called old-fashioned if they even begin to look back over their shoulders at where the word is or where the word used to be. They're called archaic if they begin to make a turn toward the centrality of that book once again. They're called ancient. They're called holy rollers or Bible thumpers, or any other negative term you can think of in order to keep their backs toward the word and their arms embracing the culture of death that's around them. You know what revivals are made out of in history? Revivals are made out of this. 
when God gets a hold of that heart that's been married to the world, that heart that knows better, that heart that once knew what those scriptures taught, once knew what the scriptures were meant to convey. A revival is made out of the spirit of God getting a hold of that, that heart and turning them toward that word. And you see, the more you draw closer to that word, the closer and closer you draw to that word, the more you're unhooking your grip on that marriage love relationship with the culture of immorality that you have embraced. The closer you get to that book, the more you become unbolted with your love affair with this world. Revivals are made out of the stuff that bring people right back here to where they look at what this word says and what this word teaches and what this word was meant to convey and they bow down before a holy God and they say, now Lord, you need to order my life around this book. You need to work in me in such a way that I will never ever turn from this book again and that I will teach my children how to obey and how to love you through this word. Psalm 119 makes and raises a very pointed question. Verse 9, how, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's a good question, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I look at my children and then their children and I wonder how they're going to stand. It was tough enough in my day. We're but one generation removed and it was tough enough to stand in our day. I remember saying in our day, how will we be able to maintain purity? Look at what's happening all around us. I remember preaching against happy days. And the people embraced it and said, yes, we need to boycott that show. Happy days. <laughs> That's like saying, leave it, the beaver was wrong. Yet there was a morality that was there. We saw immorality and we winced when we saw it. We don't wince anymore. It doesn't shock us anymore. Now we have a whole generation that's been raised on friends. Far cry from happy days, which is a far cry from leave it to beaver. And you know what we say about the leave it to beaver crowd? They're old and they're old fashioned. We're smarter today. We're wiser today. I used to alert my people years ago when I was a young preacher on what music they listened to. I used to raise objections to the lyrics of certain songs and even to the styles of certain songs. Some of those things I've changed my position on. But even as I've watched the evolution of music culturally, I wonder how many of you know what your children are listening to. I wonder how many of you realize that your children can probably quote those songs inside and out and they don't know two verses of scripture. They could probably name who those artists are. They could probably tell you a history of who they slept with and who they're having an affair with now. And they would give their right arms and hundreds of dollars to be standing in the front row idolizing those very people. But they couldn't tell you who Daniel was. They couldn't tell you who, who Josiah was. They couldn't tell you even what Moses did in his life. They probably couldn't name two of the Ten Commandments. But boy, they know the lyrics. We look at that and we laugh. We say, ah, oh, look at that. It used to preach. Maybe I need to preach that again. Maybe we need to draw our people back away from their marriage and their love affair with the world. 
How can a young man, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And you're expecting this wonderful answer. You're expecting the, the writer of the psalm to open your eyes and you're going to go, aha, there it is. Now I know what I can teach my children and this will keep them morally pure. You see the answer? By living according to your word. Now what does he mean by that? I seek you with all my heart. What does he mean by that? Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees with my lips. I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now you got to understand something. Psalm 119 was written to be memorized. Each strophe of eight verses begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter in the first eight verses, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the second eight verses, etc., etc., until all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet have been covered. The reason it's set that way is so that you can memorize it. Like all eight verses of the first, of the first strophe begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All eight verses of the second uh, strophe, verses 9 through 16, the one we're focused on, begins with the second letter of the alphabet. That was a memory issue. They wanted their children to memorize this psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest psalm in all of the psalms. Designed to be memorized. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this psalm? If you could crystallize this psalm into one thought, what would it be? Here it is. The centrality of the word in your life. That's what this psalm's about. What am I going to do with scripture? How am I going to teach scripture? How am I going to approach scripture? What role is scripture going to play in my life and in my legacy? In fact, there are various words that are used in this psalm to describe the scriptures. For example, 25 times the scriptures are defined as the law. That's the word that's used, the law. We know that the law, according to Galatians, is the schoolmaster designed to bring us to faith in Christ. The law, the scriptures, tell the story of Christ. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament is the story of Christ. I told you that in one of the legacy principles that we've been building. I want my children and my grandchildren to know that no matter where they pick up the scriptures, there is the message of Christ. It is pointing us to Christ. It's called the law. The schoolmaster designed to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. 23 times the scriptures in this psalm are called the testimonies. What is a testimony? It is a witness of how God has dealt with me. When we say to someone, share your testimony, we're saying, tell me something about your relationship to God. How has God impacted you? What have you done with the impact that God has made in your life? Tell me about your relationship to the Lord. And he uses testimony to describe the scriptures. The scriptures are God's dealings with man and man's dealings with God. That's what the word is. 
It's a picture of the dialogue between God and man. The interaction of God and man. Who that God is. Who that man is. And how they have bridged the gap. What God has done to communicate with man. 21 times the scriptures in Psalm 119 are called precepts. You know what a precept is? The word precept comes from the word deposit. Something that's placed inside for safekeeping. A deposit. You know, there is a common grace principle that I believe applies to every human being. I believe God has deposited his word in some way, shape, or form in a general revelation to all men. All men without exception. They know the difference between right and wrong. They don't have to read the Ten Commandments to know it. They know that if I'm going to go out and shoot somebody and kill somebody, they know it's wrong. They know if I'm going to go out and pick your pocket and steal your money, that that's wrong. They don't even have to read the commandment that says about that. It's placed in them. It's a deposit. You see, the word of God has been given to all men, generally. The revelation of God's word has been given to all men. Now, whether or not it becomes special to them depends upon the grace of God operative in their lives and their response to it. But this book is the basis of many of the laws in our society. Did you know that? This book spells out the difference between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, and, and uh, involuntary manslaughter. It spells out the penalties for each and shows that the crime and the penalty fit, fit each other. Our whole society was based upon laws that came from that Old Testament structure. Many people don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit the basis of the word in the history and the founding of this country, but it's true. God has deposited his word. 20 times it's called statutes in Psalm 119. Something that is engraved and cannot change, that's what a statute is. It's marked forever. It cannot change, it will not change. Now you may change. Society may change. We may continue to call wrong what is right and right what is wrong. We may continue to say it's okay to do this and it's okay to do that. But the word is engraved. It's a statute. It's permanent. It cannot be unengraved. No matter how you cut it. Adultery is a relationship, a moral relationship with another person outside of marriage. Fornication is an immoral relationship. The very word fornication is the word porneia. We get the word pornography from. Porneia, fornication, is an immoral relationship with another person and you're not married. Adultery, fornication. And as far as the word of God is concerned, you can examine it from Genesis to Revelation, all of its chapters, all of its verses, its hundreds of verses, its thousands of verses, and hundreds of thousands of words, and you will not find one word anywhere where God has rescinded the command and the prohibition against that. It's a statute. It's been engraved. It cannot change. And it will not change. To summarize, very simply, it means this. One man, one woman, one lifetime, 
in one monogamous relationship, in a marital bond, is the only way, the only way, the only legitimate, God-ordained way by which you can have a physical relationship. You can't live together outside of marriage. You cannot have a homosexual relationship outside of marriage. You cannot cheat on your wife or your husband with another man or another woman. You cannot co-inhabit. You cannot have group meetings and group wife swapping. You can't have any of that that our culture now looks at and laughs at. It's against the law. And God has not changed his mind. Now here's the key. And you know that. You know that. But you've just gone all the way over here, away from the word, and somebody over here, some professor from some uh, psychiatric ward somewhere has come up with a book, and he's written a book that basically tells you it's now okay. You just have to express your identity. You just have to study your alter ego. You have to become self-assured and self-aware and, and self-actualized and thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what my professor says. And he hasn't changed his mind. You won't find it recanted or rescinded. But now, if you don't care about this book, if you've drifted so far that you're way over here and you can't even see it anymore, every once in a while you'll hear it calling back, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you know it's wrong. Inside of marriage, it's called adultery. Outside of marriage, it's called fornication. Either way. God has not rescinded. That's what a statute is. It's engraved. You cannot unengrave it. It's permanent. When God penned it on the tablets that he handed to Moses, he put his own exclamation point. He wrote it with his own hand. And if somehow or another, God has changed his mind and has chosen not to tell us, then it brings into question the whole concept of God's inerrant ability. Because you see, if he wrote it and then changed his mind, then maybe he was wrong the first time. Maybe he didn't get it right. Or maybe he's just responding to us. Maybe we are the real gods. And God is to serve our purposes. I am God. You are God. We are God. That's what the Hindus say. That's what the Eastern religions say. But when we ignore this word, that's exactly what we're saying. I am God. Nowhere is it permissible for you to be in the backseat of a car. Nowhere is it permissible for you to have a physical relationship with your teenage boyfriend. Nowhere is it permissible for you to have a physical relationship with your teenage girlfriend. Nowhere in scripture is it permissible to do some of the horrible, horrible things that we hear about that I can't talk about with children here. That God even calls for the death penalty on some of those things. And I would be the first one to pull the switch. Because I've seen it. But nowhere has he rescinded. Nowhere. 
25 times, 22 times, it's called commandments. Commandment is something that's entrusted to us. It's what he gave Moses. He handed him the, the plates and he handed him the tablets and he said, here they are. Now go and take them to the people. The commandments have been entrusted to us. You see, it's the church's job to preach the commandments. To really preach it, you can't keep them. That's why you need Christ. But to preach the moral law of God is an absolute. The moment you see me drifting, the moment you, listen to me, you guys hire me and you guys fire me. Don't play with it. The moment you hear me standing up and talking about, well, maybe this book is not inerrant, get rid of me. That's the best thing you can do for your children. Anytime somebody handles the word and limits its power and tells you it's really not God's word, it just contains God's word, run, run. Well, 23 times it's called judgments. How that word is used is in relationship man to man. I've got God's word in my heart. Now, how do I treat you? How do you treat me? How do you and I interact with each other? What should be the conditions upon which you and I interact? What, how do we take our relationship to the next level? Where do we go with it? You know what he's telling us by using that word to describe scripture? That we need to be guided by scripture in our relationships to each other. It tells us how to handle conflict. It tells us what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. It tells us that older men are to teach younger men. It tells us that older women are to teach younger women. It talks about having a circle of friendships and accountability where two or more are gathered in my name. We are to worship together. We are to pray with one another. We are to be accountable to one another. We are to edify one another. We are to teach one another. We are to admonish one another. Where do we get all this? Do we just make it up? We got it from the Word. It's in the Word. Now, if you extract the word, I have no responsibility to you. At least not morally. I don't, could care less what happens to you when you're sick or when you're in trouble or when you don't agree with me or when our love relationship dissipates. I would care less because I would have no authority by which to speak and I would have nothing to guide us in our relationship. It's in the word. It's called word in Psalm 119. The word word is used a total of 43 times. You know what word implies? Language. Language. God is speaking to us in language. The word of God we call this. You know what else we call the word of God? What else do we call the word of God? We call the scriptures the word of God. What else do we call the word of God? Maybe I should rephrase it. Who else do we call the word of God? Christ. We call him the word of God. John called him that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is called the word of God. The word is called the word of God. So which one's the word of God? They both are. Jesus is the incarnate word. The scriptures are the revealed written word, but they both speak of the same thing, the plan of redemption through the Christ who would save us from our sins. That's why it's called word. It's language. Five times it's called the truth. 
or truthfulness. It's the amen, the exclamation point of God's word. Stable and faithful. It's called righteousness. 14 times this book is called righteousness. You know what that means? The concept of righteousness in scripture is this. How can a man become righteous? Righteous means guiltless before the law. That's what it means. To become righteous, here's the law. The law condemns me, but somehow or another I'm acquitted. I'm made righteous. God sees me as right. How does he see me as righteous? Because he sees Christ in me, who is the righteousness of God. So when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it speaks of how I become a Christian. How do I become saved? How do I inherit eternal life? That's what righteousness means. Do you know you can't, listen, you cannot, it's going to shock some of you, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be saved apart from the scriptures. It's impossible. Romans 10 makes that clear. How can a man be saved unless a preacher is sent? Then he goes on, talks about the blessedness of the man who preaches the word. We cannot be saved apart from the preaching of the word. Now, preaching doesn't mean necessarily only what I do. Preaching is what you do tomorrow morning at work. Preaching is what you do in school. Preaching is what you do when you're networking with other people. What are you doing? You're sharing what Christ has done with, for you. What are you sharing? You're sharing the word. I came to faith in Jesus Christ in 1968. I will never forget that day. Do you know how I came to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know what convinced me? And it took a long time when a man in Middletown opened the scriptures and he made me read it. He says, here, read it. Wasn't my version of the Bible, so I said, that's not the right version. He says, okay, I'll get your version. Went up into his attic, dusted off the old version, Brought it down to me, said, here it is. Read it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. You who have the son have life. You who do not have the son of God do not have life. I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that Christ has died on the cross for your sins. He read those scriptures to me and then he made me read them myself. All the arguing in the world that others did with me. All the arguing my wife did with me. All the interaction back and forth from different people trying to tell me the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. None of it made sense until somebody opened the word. Now they were all saying the word. They were all revealing the word as they understood it. But it wasn't until I saw it that my eyes were opened. Do you know what revivals are made out of? People get so far away. As I said, people get so far away. Revivals, the spirit of God grabs a hold of a man's heart. And he turns him. He says, you know why you're in this pig pen? Do you know why you're sitting out here in the muck and the mire with the prostitutes? And you've abandoned your inheritance? You want to know why you've done that? Because you've gotten away from the word. I have learned in my life Every single 
time I sin. And I sin a lot. Every single time I sin, it's because I have drifted from the book. Revivals are made when God turns that heart, brings that heart back, and says, now look. Look at what I've told you. Listen to me. The great revival spelled out in history produced one thing beyond conversion and beyond conviction of sin. You know what happens in every revival I've ever studied? The people in the land who are being revived have an intense hunger to understand the word. That's how, by the way, my wife and one other person who knew me when I got converted believed me because nobody else did. Nobody else believed me. And in retrospect, I wouldn't have believed me either. But you know why they believed me? You know why she believed me? Do you know why that one other person who's now in heaven believed me? Because they saw in me an intense, almost obsessive hunger for this book. I wanted to eat, sleep, and drink this book. I wanted to know it inside and out. I learned more in one year of studying this book than my wife had learned in her entire lifetime being raised in another evangelical church. She'd be the first one to tell you that. I not only caught up with her, I zoomed right past her. Because the hunger was there. I couldn't let it go. The hunger was there. Now, I've noticed in my life, when I'm drifting, I'm not real hungry. I'm just not real hungry. And I begin to drift. I begin to fall backwards. And it's because I've gotten away from the word. Now, let me close with something. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5, because I'm going to set the stage for next week. The word is called righteousness. The word is called law. The word is called testimony. The word is called precepts. The word is called statutes. The word is called commandments. The word is called judgments. The word is called the word. The word is called truth and faithfulness. Now turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Because here's what we're going to address the next time we're together. Look with me at verse 1. My son. Now remember, he just talked about his son in verse one, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now he says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to the words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. I want to talk to you next week about moral purity. I want to talk to you in response to the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? Because I want to build this legacy principle. And here it is, and we'll close. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn the critical importance of raising a generation that knows how to handle moral temptation by using scripture. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.